This is a Federal News Network podcast. A new rule increasing U.S.-made content and what the government buys is on the way. The Federal Acquisition Regulation Council, the FAR Council, published it yesterday. It increases the minimum U.S. content from 55 percent to 60 percent and eventually to 75 percent. But the rule has several exceptions. We get analysis now from the president and CEO of the Professional Services Council, David Berteau. And, David, it's not like we didn't know this rule was coming in the first place, did we? No, that's true. This is in response to Executive Order 14005, which is issued very early in the administration, uh, right after Inauguration Day. And uh, and they did publish uh, an opportunity for us to comment. Uh, PSC commented uh, along with the uh, Council of Defense and Space Industry Associations. In fact, they had 70 comments all told, and uh, then they disposed of those comments. You're right, it increases domestic content requirements pretty dramatically from 55 to 75% over the course of about seven years. But it also has options if contractors can't meet those requirements. They have a fallback option. It doesn't fall back below the 55%, but there are some accommodations. Of course, the problem is to get those accommodations, you have to go through the senior procurement official of the agency, and they have to then coordinate with the MIAO, the Made in America office, before they can do that. This will probably have a pretty limiting effect on the number of fallback options there. But two big things that would affect companies that I think were deferred, one was the reporting requirement, which was actually quite burdensome because you didn't really know what you'd have to be reporting on or how that would be used. And the second is the price preference that the government would be willing to spend for an increased Made in America content. Uh, Both of those concerns were deferred until another action, which would be the publishing of the critical items and critical components list that might be subject to the specifics of the rule. So we're going to have to wait one more round, see what that is, and then be prepared to comment on that as well. In the meantime, the clause will probably begin to take effect. It's just that the big questions, reporting and and uh, uh, price preference, won't be available. So it's going to be hard to award contracts under this. Well, I think that Office of Exceptions or whatever they call it in the government is going to be busy because when you look at electronic assemblies and subsystems and systems, which sometimes services contractors deliver to the government as a way of just making sure that what they develop can run, those subsystems, it's very hard to get 55% U.S. content because for the most part, the boards and all of the components, maybe the high-end semiconductors are still made here, but most of that is all foreign content. It is. And and when you get into systems, and you saw this with the telecommunication system, the Huawei and the ZTE ban under Section 889 that was put into place a couple of summers ago, it's hard for individual companies to do the research necessary to say, this one won't work, but this one's okay. I think, and many of our members believe, the government should have an affirmative responsibility if they're going to require us to be able to use the right parts and equipment, uh, whether it's telecommunications, software, et cetera, give us a list of what complies rather than have every company have to make this determination on their own. And then, of course, the last thing is that this whole Made in America focus on components is important, but there's also a labor side to this as well. Uh, You know, what you're looking for is the kind of good paying jobs that support the federal government through contractors and as a goal. uh, And there's no way that you have made in America requirements for the workers, even though clearly you would have a preference for uh, for workers necessary to be able to do that. So contract by contract is not good enough for that. Interesting. Well, one thing we can say, there won't be any Russian content in anything for if there ever was any, which I doubt. But for sure, that's closed off. 
assuming we can figure out where it is, there won't be any. Big assumption. We're speaking with David Berteau, president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. And the return to work closer to home is happening now. And there was a big COVID plan. What was it? Almost 100 pages. And you said some things were missing in there. Well, the president announced in his State of the Union, and that's, you know, a week ago Tuesday uh, tonight, that uh, the federal government will be returning to office dramatically. Most workers will be back in the office by April, he said. Well, we've been talking with the agencies before and after that, and there's no agency plans for that. In fact, some agencies have told us their, their guidance right now is keep teleworking, maximum teleworking, till September, which is not April. Uh, by my calendar anyway. And so I think also there's a strong focus from the president's comments on external interface with the public, which is really important, right? But the internal operations, which is where contractors operate, we need that return to office clarity as well. And it's not just agency by agency, it's facility by facility, because the guidance right now of what requirements you have to have before you can come into building, or even if you can come into building, is not determined across the agency. It's determined by the door you go in. Right. Do you have to have a vaccine? Do you have to have a test? Do you have to wear a mask? All these things are not determined from the top down. They're determined from the bottom up. Contractors are in the dark on this. So what do we turn to? We turn to the 90 plus page new COVID response plan that the administration put out on the same day, essentially. And, it, it you know, that says, OK, keep vaccinating, keep testing, keep investing in treatments. OK, that's fine. But the FAR clause governing contractors, even though it's enjoined by the courts, is still in play. Right. And it could be that's uh, under appeal. It could be reversed or modified at any point in time. A lot of confusion here. A lot of inconsistency. Here. Contractors uh, need clarification and PSC on behalf of our members is asking for it. And if you talk to a lot of people in the, let's say, services end, say the IT end of government itself, I've talked to a few in recent weeks. And many of them say, no, I really don't plan on going back. And I've known a couple that have signed agreements for permanent telework, people in fairly responsible jobs. So I'm I'm not sure how much I think, like you say, they're talking about the people that may interact with the public in person would be returning. Uh, It's important, obviously, that, you know, Social Security offices be open. You can't do Medicare without going to Social Security offices, IRS help desks, et cetera. I've met over the weekend with a number of senior government officials and, and asked them how many of your workers are excited about coming back to the office? And it's a mixed result. I think, we, we, you know, the great resignation may not be over yet when it comes to either federal employees. Most of our member companies are already moving people back into the offices. It's the government facilities where the, the issues come up. Look, in the end, Tom, we have to have a balance of health and safety of the workplace and the workforce with having the workforce necessary to do the work, either the contracts you already have in place or the ones that you're bidding on and hope to be able to win and perform as well. That balance point is not really clearly addressed in the, either the government's guidance or in the COVID plan. Well, if you do go back to the office one way or the other, don't eat the peanut butter crackers you left there before the pandemic, <laughs> especially if they have blue fuzz. I found some tea bags that had been there for two years, and I, I had to research, do they lose their caffeine by sitting there? And the answer is yes, they do. So don't expect one tea bag to carry you through the morning. Again, especially if it has green fuzz on it, then you probably don't want to put it in your tea anyway. And just while we have you, David, what are contractors saying about Ukraine? I mean, this is not a direct effect on services contractors, except in, or is it? 
Well, as it turns out, uh, Tom, actually, uh, you know, the, the only death I know of involved in U.S. operations in Ukraine is a contractor employee. And it was on the Agency for International Development side of the house, uh, you know, not on the military side of the house. The government doesn't report on those. And we're certainly not going to talk about it either. It's a private issue between the contractor and the person and their family. But uh, but it, it is a reminder that, in fact, contractors are on the front line just as much as uh, federal civilians and, and military personnel are as well. But the big issue out of Ukraine, of course, is the two things. One is the supply chain impact. And we're already seeing, for instance, metals for semiconductors come out of Ukraine and Russia. They're big suppliers of palladium and xenon and, and neon. And, and those are uh, already addressed in those supply chain um, messages that the agency sent to DOD the same day Russia invaded, but they're not accommodated in those plans, right, to how you're going to increase our supply chain availability. The other impact, I think, is on wage inflation and on inflation overall. You know, oil hitting $100 plus a barrel, $140 a barrel. We may cut off oil, uh, Russian oil in the U.S. That's going to continue to be up there. It's possible to see those costs flowing through, but it also has a wage inflation impact. And frankly, um, the feds have not figured out how to accommodate wage growth in, in contractors today. And then the final lesson is probably logistics, which if we have a minute, I'll touch on. Well, take a minute, sure. So the, we're already seeing the stories of Russians invaded, tanks are running out of fuel, trucks are running out of fuel, they can't get food to their troops, etc. This is a home game right across their border. If the Russians didn't plan for how you're going to sustain your forces once they're deployed, it asks the question then of how well is the U.S. prepared to sustain our forces because we don't want home games. We want away games where you've got a lot longer logistics trails. I think it really puts a premium on the U.S. government taking a hard look at its own plans and capability for sustaining forces that are forward deployed as an element of deterrence. Because if you know you can sustain them, people aren't going to test them. Well, it's probably fair to say that our military leadership is watching minute by minute what is going on in Russia and Ukraine. And probably they've seen maybe a good, solid reminder of that very fact. Right. It's lessons learned not only of how they fight, but of how we need to be prepared to fight as well. Uh, because in the end, as many presidents have said, the best way to prevent a war is to be ready to win one. David Berto is president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. As always, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. Good luck. All right. We'll post this interview along with a link to the new rule at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. 
She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I 
talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job. And then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.